Hey everyone, this is Cody Turner. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with my colleague Steve Nunez about the history and philosophy of trap music and hip-hop. Steve spent five years in the U.S. Army as a Green Beret, and then was deployed as a Special Weapons Sergeant to Central America and Afghanistan, before being honorably discharged in 2010. He then went on to attain a B.A. in Philosophy of Religion and Anthropology from UNCW, and then proceeded to get a Master's degree in Theological Studies from Harvard and he's currently a PhD student in philosophy at the University of Connecticut. In this episode of the podcast, Steve and I discuss a paper he's currently working on in which he applies the ancient Greek Aristotelian notion of catharsis to two modern-day art forms, namely hip-hop and trap music. Steve probably knows more about hip-hop and trap than anyone I've ever met, so sit back and listen as the hip-hop guru enlightens you. Without further preamble, I present to you, Steve Nunes. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Storm coming, Mr. Wayne. So yeah, thanks for doing this, man. Um, as I said, I really like philosophy and I really like hip hop, and you're infusing them together in a nice little blend. Yeah. So that's why I wanted to chat. Trying to at least. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So before we get there, I thought you could just say something about your background, your undergrad experience, how you arrived at UConn. Oh um, man, that's a, whew, that's a that's a journey. Um, so I was born in Binghamton, New York, upstate New York, uh, January thirtieth, nineteen eighty-seven. But I moved to North Carolina when I was like four or five. I moved to Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, where I grew up. I grew up playing football uh, and baseball mostly. Um, through through another uh, a few more sports, but mostly baseball and football. Um, after I graduated high school, I enlisted in the army, and uh, that July, the July after I graduated, I ended up. Um, I was at Sand Hills in Fort Benning, Georgia. Um, getting ready to go through what they call one station unit training. Um, <clears throat> I enlisted as what they call 18 X-ray, which is a special forces recruit. What motivated so, you to join the army? Man, there's a whole list of things that motivated me to join the army. I think in retrospect, um, I've thought about this a lot. I think one of them, my, my father's from the Dominican Republic, so um, there was a lot of interesting relationships with uh, the U.S. nation state that I, I felt um, I ought to give back to. I didn't have money to go to college, really. Uh, came from a, a lower to middle class background. Um, grew up on, on Medicaid and food stamps, so college wasn't really the thing. Um, like I said, I, I played football mostly to go to college, and whenever that didn't work out, uh, my mom sat me down and she was like, what are you doing? Um, in retrospect, I think uh, part of it had to do, I grew up in a lesbian household as well, and I think uh, a lot of it was me trying to uh, create um, a masculine identity or hyper-masculine identity to, to deal with some of, of my experience as a kid um, with lesbian parents. But uh, yeah, so spent five years in the Army as a Green Beret. I got my Green Beret at 20 years old. Um, and went on to serve in 7th Special Forces Group as a Special Forces Weapons Sergeant. Um, did a deployment to Central America, and then I did a deployment to Southern Afghanistan. Um, and 2010, I was honorably discharged in July 2010. 
Um, what happened? <clears throat> I just was kind of over the military. Oh, okay. <laughs> at the time, yeah, I was just, my contract was up. I had really wrestled with it. Um, one of the reasons why I got out um, was supposed to be like three basically back-to-back-to-back trips to Afghanistan with a, a move of the whole unit. My unit moved from Fort Bragg to Eglin Air Force Base, uh, so North Carolina to Florida. So in between three back-to-back to back trips to Afghanistan, it would have been a move to Florida too. So that was just something that I wasn't really willing to do or wanted to do. So um, a little while after I got out, I ended up beginning, uh, began contracting as a personal security specialist um, for the Department of State on an embassy protection detail in uh, Kabul, Afghanistan. Um, and there, um, my team was basically uh, tasked out with uh, protecting congressional delegations whenever they came over to, to the embassy. So <clears throat> folks like Michelle Bachman and Michelle, uh, excuse me, Michelle Bachman, Nancy Pelosi, uh, McCain, a bunch of people I've, I've interacted with. But during that time, I started to uh, become critical of everything that I thought that I knew about the United States. I think this was sparked by a lot of different things, um, some interactions that I had with some colleagues, um, but chiefly the interactions that I have with uh, Afghan people, the Afghan communities that, that the State Department was working beside really challenged uh, the notions that I had about Muslims and Islam and really, really revealed to me a deep, deep gulf in between what I thought I knew about the religion that sort of animated the war that I found myself in and uh, the actual experiences that I was having with Afghan people on the ground. So that led me to want to study Af- uh, to study Afghanistan and Islam a little bit more formally. Um, so I used my 9-11 GI Bill and enrolled at UNCW. Um, and this was in 2013. Um, so I knew I wanted to study religion, having to be a philosophy and religion department joint. A joint department. Um, so through studying religion, I sort of fell in love with philosophy. And along the way, I uh, picked did, up did your love for religion come, or did your interest in studying religion come from interacting with Islamic people when you were abroad? Uh, is that like the foundation of it, um, or is it? I would than say that? I would say uh, yes and no. Um, it definitely, definitely was was sparked by my interactions with with Muslim Afghans um, that sort of challenged everything because coming up in in the 9-11 in the post 9-11 south as uh, an adolescent essentially I was I think I was 12 or 13 13 Uh, let's see yeah something like that I don't know I was young I was a freshman in high school I remember I was a freshman in high school so I think that's like what 13 or 14 yeah um but yeah, it's really, really interesting. I don't think it's kind of hard to remember sometimes what that those times felt like. But I mean, like if you look at media polls and shit, it's like 98, 99% of the American population is like, no, nah, go to Afghanistan and then go to Iraq. So uh, that really, really played a role. But I think the way that we talk about Muslims and Islam in the United States of America is really, really harmful, particularly particularly for for young kids that don't really know what to make of the world. Um, so, yeah, that sort of made me question, like, what what's actually going on? Because the thing, the propaganda that I'm reading in the news just doesn't really match up with some of the experiences that I'm having with people over here. Yeah. And um, that really was a 
one of the driving driving factors of like what the fuck is the United States doing in Afghanistan in the first place? Is that part? Um, is that partly what motivated you to exit the military as well? I think it. Just I th- that I think I think I won't. I won't go to the extent and say that it was a conscious thing. I think um, there were a lot of things looking back on it that just kind of felt uncomfortable and felt a little off. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I, I can't I can't legitimately look at you and say that I actually was like conscientiously thinking about those things while I was a 22 year old kid in Afghanistan figuring out what the fuck I was going to do next with life. It wasn't it wasn't that deep of a thing. I think a lot of this I've analyzed afterwards and and kind of put things in perspective from where I'm sitting right now. Um, but that, that's always problematic in and of itself. Um, yeah. So what's up? Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> There's so, so much. So that's a, like that's a lot. That's a lot right there. That was. Um, I knew none of this, by the way, for the um, listeners. We don't really know yeah, each other that well. Yeah. There's so much. There's so much in there that we get into. But um, yeah, I guess let, let's uh, fast forward to UConn. So how do <laughs> fast forward to UConn? Okay, so uh, I graduated from UNCW with uh, I majored in philosophy and religion and anthropology with minors in Middle Eastern Islamic Studies and Classical Studies. Um, From there, I went on to uh, do a Master of Theological Studies in Religion, Ethics, and Politics at Harvard Divinity School, where I uh, continue to study sort of religious and political violence. Um, And that is really, really what led me here to to UConn, where I'm studying um, violence, and specifically political violence under uh, Lewis Gordon. Right. Yeah, so I want to talk about a particular paper that you wrote or are in the process of writing on the relationship between Aristotelian philosophy and hip-hop. Okay. So I guess maybe we could start just by explaining the concept of catharsis. I mean, again, I like work like this because I feel like there's too much work in philosophy where people aren't engaging with real-world problems or real-world things. You know, there are too many Gettier-style counterexamples. I'm just sick of all of, like, the 18th iteration of someone's analysis on Kant. Yeah. You know, like, I, like, I like applied philosophy, so I like that you're taking classical philosophy, ancient Greek philosophy, and applying it to a modern-day art form. Man. Like, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. It's- but I, I think let's start with the ancient Greek side and maybe talk about catharsis and that concept before we dive into some of the hip-hop stuff. Okay. Um, but that's cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so catharsis, it, like, it, like, it goes back to Aristotle, generally, is the thought. Um, so, it, it's really, really complicated because to, to frame it, so Aristotle's poetics was more like lecture notes. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't really like a formal book project, but when he died, they compiled it as basically a book project. So it's not really clear um, in Aristotle's thinking what he's actually talking about whenever whenever he's ta- whenever he uses this term catharsis. So um, a lot of the a lot of the conversation around this has come from, like I said, it's in poetics, uh, but there's a passage in poetics that I'll read you, and, and, and it goes um, something like this. Um, quote, tragedy then is an imitation of serious and complete action which possess magnitude by being pleasurable, pleasurably embellished through speech with each of the forms separately employed in the parts. 
through acting and not through a narrative, by bringing to fruition through pity and fear the catharsis of such kinds of emotions. So that's sort of the quote that that most of the analysis on catharsis derives from. Now, that being said, catharsis is there's like a plethora of reading on catharsis if you're interested in it so if there's a whole a million takes on what catharsis is because, <laughs> because that passage is so vague people yeah. are like what is this dude actually talking about i was astonished when i figured out just how much ink has been spilled on the it's, concept of catharsis it's, it's, it's they're what, catharsis experts like, it might be they spend it their whole lives be, just yeah legit it might be it. one of one of the most explored concepts yeah. in uh, so-called Western philosophy. If only Aristotle had just been a little clearer. Yeah, that's, the, this all that's the interesting <laughs> thing. I think that brings up like methodological <laughs> points of like how we curate our work in the first place in the face of death and destruction and these sorts of things, right? Because I think clarity is really, really necessary and we see that that's a very, very, like, he's very vague about it in poetics. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly, like I said, probably because it was a lecture and he was, he just had bullet points and he was really, really fleshing out what he was talking about. So, he didn't realize for 2,000 years after his death, people would just yeah, be like staring at arguing, that passage. Still arguing about it. Um, it's like, it's just a passing note, guys. <laughs> Relax. <laughs> it was a quick thought. Yeah, so the general thought is like catharsis back in the ancient Greek days was a, med- was a medical term. Um, so if you had a bl- if you have a blister or something, this is where the general idea of catharsis and analysis comes from. That if you have a blister or something, the pleasure that you get from draining the blister is the catharsis, is the tragic pleasure. Um, so he's specifically talking about catharsis as we uh, consume art or, or as our, our, our we, or we are audience members of of an art form. So. And in particular, it plays a role in his analysis of tragedy, like what tragedy is. specifically of what tragedy is. Um, So, um, let's see, where to go from there? Um, So there's three dominant interpretations of of what people think that Aristotle meant by catharsis. Right. Um, And so, like, the basic idea, before we get into those interpretations, it's like, if I'm understanding it correctly... Life goes on when, so when we have emotional, these are just from my notes right now. When we have emotional intensity in life, life goes on. So we can never kind of like release that emotional intensity and it functions to harden us. But when we experience emotional intensity within the context of a tragic play, the play comes to an end. Art comes to an end, which allows us to kind of release that emotional intensity. Specifically pity and fear. Which they viewed as negative right. emotions. I think that play, that that I think is a, an interesting uh, question too. Is why, why specifically pity and fear? I'm not sure. Like I said, I'm just now getting into some of the some of the context of catharsis. But there right. had to have been something going on that pity and fear were shaped in a specific way, rather than I don't know sadness and rage. You know what I mean? Why pity and fear? I think that's a that's a question that's worth asking too. But generally speaking, it's kind of the release of emotions specifically pity and fear so as to be therapeutic maybe right 
but then when you say release, that, yeah, that's the question is like re- right. release. What do you mean by release? And that's what the philosophers are basically arguing about is what actually gives you the pleasure. Is it the release of it or is it? Right. And that gets into these three interpretations. Right. Yeah. So what are the three interpretations? Um, so the three general interpretations are the purgation view, which is which is the view that you sort of just shaped in front in, in in the conversation is that we, we we gain the pleasure from just purging these negative emotions. Yeah, just of, get them out there. Get them out. Oh. Like I'm I'm over them. I'm off. I'm off it. I'm, I just want to get beyond whatever it is that's causing um, pity and fear. Just expunging it from your soul. Yeah. So uh, in response to this sort of view that, that of the thought that that we're just trying to purge it, um, some scholars came around and they said. No, no, no. The pleasure is actually from purifying the pity and fear into some other affect or emotion that is more desirable um, to you as a person. So you're not expunging it from your soul. You're transforming it into a more positive emotion. You're transforming it and using it in a positive sort of way to drive you towards, I'm I'm guessing, eudaimonia, um, the good life, happiness. So that's the purification interpretation. So that's the purification interpretation. Then we got the cognitive um, stimulation. And then the cognitive stimulation interpretation really comes out of uh, contestation of both of those. Um, and in this interpretation, scholars are like, nah, both of those are kind of wrong, kind of right and kind of wrong. Um, and the cognitive stimulation interpretation holds that catharsis is the pleasure attained um, by an observer through the stimulation achieved in interpreting the actions of the characters, chiefly the protagonist in yeah. relation to the plot and normative social responses to it. Um, it's only through the distance between the actual and the imaginative experience of fear and pity that allow us to achieve catharsis. So the imaginative faculty is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and this and, is where Kendall Walton's notion of quasi-emotions comes yeah, in. exactly. Right, yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, so to, to put it in perspective, uh, have you seen Get Out? No, I've been meaning to. Get Out. You should watch Get Out. I won't use that as an. Have you seen the Jungle Book? The old one, not the new one. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, you, you generally know the under, yeah, yeah. The, the the story. So, um, put yourself in the shoes of Mowgli. When Shere Khan comes to attack you, what do you feel when you're watching or or thinking about it? Right. It's something like fear or pity, but it's definitely different than what you would feel if there was actually a fucking tiger in front of you probably <laughs> if i had to guess right. um, and this is this is the paradox of tragedy right it's like yeah. we don't experience when real life tragic events happen we don't find them pleasurable but then we can find these difficult emotions pleasurable within a cinematic context yeah exactly so that's what we're wrestling with when we're talking about catharsis is what exactly is going on in this relationship between the consumer of the art and the art and what what is it that allows us to generate pleasure out of this crazy crazy tragic series of events right um so yeah generally the cognitive stimulation interpretation uh, basically says that that it's it's through this stimulation of our our cognitive faculties through the imagination of being able to put ourselves in the shoes of the protagonist sort of builds a sort of affect or empathy for that protagonist um because the the key to a tragedy is that it's got to be unwarranted right like the 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 negative thing that happens in the plot has to be unwarranted upon the protagonist or we don't feel bad for it have you seen game of thrones yeah i love so, it so so when New joffrey so when, so when joffrey dies like we don't feel bad 
Oh, dude, I love that guy. He's a nice kid. <laughs> exactly, right? Um, so it has to be, it's, it's the Ned Starks of the world that we feel bad for whenever they get their heads lopped off. I got so much pleasure when Ramsey got eaten by dogs. Oh, my God. That's so good. Yeah, you say, quote, without this imaginative faculty, pity or quasi-feel, as Kendra Walden puts it, the pleasurable experience the pleasurable experience audience members gain from the consumption of tragedy would collapse into the negative and painful experiences of those emotions, yeah. those real-life emotions. Right. So then, so after, in your paper, after you lay out these different three interpretations of catharsis, you explain how you have this kind of new, different theory of catharsis, or a theory that adds something else, and you call it your interest-relative theory. So yeah, what's the um, basic idea there? The basic idea, so this, like I said, this is really, really start, still still in the works, and I'm really, really still exploring this, especially since I've read a few things since then that have really challenged how I want to think about this. Um, but yeah, I think uh, we'll get to this sort of as, as I, I pair this with hip-hop and trap music, um, right. we'll go over some of the considerations that I'm thinking about, but... The biggest flaw, I think, in the entire discourse of catharsis is that it neglects to talk about artistic intent. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's one of the ways that I think about music. I, I listen to music a lot of the times depending on what emotions I'm feeling and how I want to deal with these emotions. Um, for example, if I go to the gym, I want to listen to a specific type of music. Mm -hmm. um, if I want to laugh, I gonna watch a comedy not a horror movie or whatever it is um whatever that Here, what be. song that'll make you feel better <laughs> exactly um now i think these artists these directors these producers these artists that are making this art for us to consume have these aims in mind whenever they're making the art so why should we ignore it mm -hmm. um so basically what i'm trying to think about is um what exactly is going on between the relationship between the artist and the consumer of the art that allows us to gain this pleasure? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, um, like I said, we'll get into it uh, through some, some specific examples in hip-hop and, and trap music. Um, but, yeah, there's something, there's something going on with artistic intent that I think um, allows viewers or consumers of of that art to gain pleasure from uh dealing and contemplating reality in in, in its messiness mm -hmm. um and at bottom uh which gets into fanon a little bit um which we can talk about here in a little bit mm -hmm. i think what's going on is that catharsis is the breaking of the ego in a way that maintains the ego but contemplates this relationship in, in relation to the other and, and the society around us. Mm. Um, so it's sort of, uh, at bottom, lets us know that we're not alone mm. in the world and that shit hurts and that reality is messy. And I think that's sort of what Aristotle was trying to get to. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so to provide some substance to this, let's turn towards hip-hop and trap. Okay. Because you take this concept of catharsis and your idea as to what it is and you kind of apply it to hip-hop and trap music in a novel way, right? So I thought we could start... I thought... Yeah, so start with hip-hop, I guess, before we get to trap. So what... I guess, how did hip-hop... Let's start with the origins of hip-hop. And I'm actually... I don't really don't know much about how hip-hop got started, so I'm interested to learn some here. How did hip-hop get started and how is it connected to Du Bois's 
sorrow songs. Okay, yeah. So that's really, really, really where this sort of idea departed from. And what are Du Bois' sorrow songs um, as well? So <laughs> W.E.B. Du Bois, for those of you that don't know, was um, one of the most formative scholars of the, the late 19th, early to mid 20th century. Um, he was born in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Yeah, I was just about to say that. I went to Berkshire School, which oh, is in you? Great Barrington, Massachusetts, uh-huh. and his childhood home is like 10 minutes from man, our high school, so we, we, we'd go there and been? visit it. Have you ever been? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I um, I had the blessing to see his house in Cam- where he stayed in Cambridge when he went to Harvard, but oh, uh, he's the first black PhD to ever graduate from Harvard, uh, graduated from the history department, but really, really a lot of people can uh, attribute of the rise of sociology um, to W.E.B. Du Bois. He was a formative figure in the foundation of uh, the Niagara Movement, which later became the NAACP. Just a super, super interesting guy. Um, But his 1903 book, The Souls of Black Folk, really, really, um, I've been thinking about that text for quite some time um, uh, because it presents just a number of questions. Um, And I think most... Most analysis of race in the United States of America, at least from the black side of things, uh, usually departs from Du Bois, or at least includes Du Bois. Um, So, uh, in Souls of Black Folk, Du Bois, um, I guess to shape the song, it might be a little bit more helpful to go back to uh, Lucy McKim Garrison. Mm -hmm. Um, So, this woman, Lucy McKim Garrison, in 1862, uh, she is the daughter of abolitionists, and she ends up later on marrying uh, Wendell Phillips Garrison, who's the son of of William Lloyd Garrison, the famous abolitionist. So um, Lucy McKim Garrison is clearly, clearly pretty pro- pro-black, at least comparatively to uh, radically pro-black for most white people in the 1860s. Well, when she is down, I think she's in Charleston. Um, she hears these kids singing all of these, like this breadth of, of songs with, with all of this philosophical depth. So she ends up um, compiling all of these songs into what becomes known as sorrow songs. Um, fast forward to Du Bois, about a half a century later, Du Bois is really, really concerned with the sorrow song. Um, so W.B. Du Bois defines a sorrow song as, quote, some haunting melody from the only American music which welled up from black souls in the dark past. Uh, so the sorrow song, uh, to shape this a little bit more historically, um, is sort of a cultural creolization of uh, African religions like Candomblé, Yoruba, um, West African Islam, white Protestantism. There's a whole lot of amalgamation going on on plantations between 1619 and 1860 in the 1860s that that these sorrow songs sort of come out of. Um, but Du Bois says, by faithful chance, the Negro folk song, the rhythm, the rhythmic cry of the slave, stands today not simply as the soul of American music but as the most beautiful expression of human experience born of this side of the seas. It has been neglected, it has been, and is half despised, and above all, it has been persistently mistaken and misunderstood. But notwithstanding, it still remains as the single spiritual heritage of the nation and greatest gift of the Negro people. 
he continues a few pages later to say, through all the through all of the sorrow of the sorrow songs, there breathes a hope, a faith in the ultimate justice of things. The minor cadence of dis- cadences of despair change often to triumph and calm confidence. Sometimes it is this faith in life, sometimes a faith in death, sometimes assurance of boundless justice and some fair world beyond. But whichever it is, the meaning is always clear that sometime, somewhere, men will judge men by their souls and not by their skins. And this is, uh, I think, like a page or two before the end of the book. But so just to just to these quotes are just to show you that Du Bois thought that music was was really, really important to black life in the United States. So important, in fact, that every epigraph of a chapter in The Souls of Black Folk has a stanza or a bar from a sorrow song. Um, So as I'm reading about sorrow songs, I sort of have been interested in the lineage of where hip-hop comes from for a long time anyway i grew up playing jazz trombone and i've always been interested in the blues and soul and sam cook and marvin gay and just the whole history Mm -hmm. um so hip-hop i think to bracket hip-hop and where this comes in the lineage really really comes out of the late 70s early 80s is what most people say out of the bronx specifically um, this dude named DJ Cool Herc would throw these massive raging parties, uh, like block parties essentially. And what would happen was you would take an old soul record or an old funk record or some old kind of record. And um, what DJ Herc noticed was that people would become more active and dancing, dancing wise. They would like dancing to what they call the, the, the drum breaks. Uh, so in every song you have a drum break that usually goes into uh, like the chorus or whatever. So he would take that part out of the record and just spin that into the drum breaks. Okay. Well, so this is where the time, spinning started. So this and DJ is where started. spinning. This is where hip hop started. This so started. because this is what a lot of people don't realize is that hip hop central to hip hop is the idea of the sample. So out of this idea that we're going to take the drum breaks out of these songs and make them basically our own songs really, really still to this day animates the way that hip-hop is produced and consumed. And a sample is just taking an a, a old song would and be, a modifying it? A sample would be, yep, take, taking one or two or however many bars out of an older song and repurposing them and putting new lyrics over them. Um, so sometimes there's lyrics in it sometimes there's not so like um, I think a perfect example um, if you listen to Blood on the Leaves by Kanye West um, for your listeners go listen to Blood on the Leaves by Kanye West Mm -hmm. and then go listen to Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday or Nina Simone any, any one of those versions of the song and then I think this really, really highlights some of the importance and the nuance that's going on in music production and hip hop that gets completely ignored is is this resurgence. And so automatically what's tied to this idea of Kanye West's uh, blood on the leaves is this idea of the political nature of what was happening in the song Strange Fruit. Uh Um, So while people might not realize it, it's there. And I think that's a powerful symbolic gesture that that often gets completely ignored in hip hop. So um, that's one thing. The sample is really, really important. So the the and the drug war plays a prominent role here too, um, right? Yeah, no? yeah. So that's what I was just about to get into, actually. Um, so as we start, as this idea of sampling sort of becomes more popular and this, that, and the other, it catches on. So now you'll get. 
what they called MCs, Masters of Ceremony. So I didn't know that was the official so, name for it. Oh yeah. Oh, so cool. while so while Master you're spinning ceremony. so while you're spinning things, you'll have somebody that will get on the mic and sort of guide the Sarah the the party, right? So this came. This, this is a long lineage. I love how it started with parties. Just yeah. started with rages. Yeah. yeah. So this is a, so it's necessary cathartic. Like yeah. yeah. So this follows that idea that the sorrow song for me and for Du Bois, I would argue, is necessarily cathartic. And this is sort of the lineage that hip hop jumps out of in in New York in the 1980s. So. MCs get over, get get up on the mic, and they start rhyming over these. The, they start rapping. So these these rhymes that were over these samples eventually become what's known as rap music. Mm-hmm. Now in the eighties, you're absolutely correct. The drug war jumps off. We got to think. Uh, there's a huge proliferation of Malcolm X in northern cities. Of Elijah Muhammad, the Nation of Islam is very very strong still. Um, so you're 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 really dealing with questions coming out of the Black Power movement, uh, coming out of the so-called civil rights movement that I generally like to frame as the Second Reconstruction, and you're coming out of uh, not really like significant social change in 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 the places that that this hip hop is being proliferated in the Bronx specifically. Um, so with this comes. Uh, a whole host of people like Africa, Africa Bambata, Big Daddy Kane, a whole host of other people that come out run DMC um, that sort of reject a political critique of American society um, from a black perspective. Um, and that's sort of what really, really forges hip hop as we know hip hop or as we collectively memorialize hip hop today. Um, so fast forward to the late 80s early 90s this is i think where most people think about like the where where hip-hop where i would argue hip-hop becomes a a mainstream sort of artistic device in the united states of america yeah i was gonna ask that when did it enter the mainstream i would say i would say the the late 80s where it's like mainstream mainstream um mid to late 80s uh, I think there's a couple of key groups, uh, specifically NWA, really, really blows up. Right. Um, and America, white America specifically doesn't know what to do with the NWA and a number of other things. So that's where you get like the explicit labels on this, that, and the other, and the censoring of art and that. So um, hey, let me just uh, briefly read a quote from your paper that I really liked on yeah. this point regarding the drug war. So you say. This, I feel like this just sums it up. I mean, you summed it up yourself perfectly, but this sums it up as well. And this is your voice, so. This consciousness and critique quickly became the defining feature of hip-hop. In short, with the rise of hip-hop, the microphone became an amplifier projecting the unheard and silent street testimony of a generation animated by the racial politics of the drug war into the broader national discourse. The culture became a tool of empowerment that enabled members to pursue the possibilities of the American dream. And perhaps most importantly for our purposes, the contemporary sorrow song became the primary cathartic outlet of the Black American experience. I just felt like that was a really good song. Yeah, I yeah, I think I think that pretty much um, that pretty much is is the summary of, of what I'm trying to get. I might edit that up a little bit, but yeah, that's basically it. And I think as you see um, to this day, it really, really is still an outlet. I, I won't say for for Black youth, and this is where I think not only for Black youth because this is one of the troubles of um we'll get into this as we go into trap 
and hip hop a little bit more. But one of the troubles for me of of trying to frame or draw contours around the two genres about catharsis is really really difficult. Uh, one one of the reasons, one of the main questions, like, what about white people? That listen to hip hop. I think that's one of the biggest things. Can they get a cathartic release from listening to hip hop? The answer is yes, because uh, I do. Yeah, exactly. All the time. Uh, exactly. So um, I think that's what that's where for me this interest relative thing, uh, this interest relative theory really, really um, can encompass all sorts of views of why people might listen to a, any any genre of music or consume any genre of art generally, um, at least in cathartic terms. Do you think it's hip hop is still fundamentally defined in terms of the black American experience? Like that was the origin of it, but it seems like it's kind of evolved and as it seeped into the mainstream culture, it's not just it's I mean, you have plenty of famous white rappers now, right? I mean plenty, yeah, but well, not, here but here's the interesting this is the this has always been an interesting thing is it's been generally produced and created by black artists mm -hmm. but for the history of hip hop has been consumed by generally speaking white kids like mostly white kids which really? is oh yeah absolutely since like the early 90s that's why that's why parents put a an explicit label on the shit they, because they didn't want their kids listening to it um yeah so it was it's it's always the been consumed. yeah it's always and i think this this comes from like uh, I don't think that, just like culturally, I don't think hip-hop happens the way that it does without punk music and the Beastie Boys and figures like that. And I think that it, in New York City specifically, I think it's this sort of milieu um, that allows for um, the, cult the, the cultivation of, of a cathartic art uh, like hip-hop. Um, because it's such an interesting site of American culture. New York is so unique in so many different ways that um, it's really, really interesting the relationship between hip-hop and New York because then yeah. I think that that's one of the things that I think really, really uh, people miss whenever we think about hip-hop is that each of these cities that these artists are speaking from have a completely different shape own, of, of political problems and social problems and social questions and lingo and all it's it's for intents and purposes like a completely different culture if you really really look at it so another question i had is is do you think hip-hop today is still fundamentally political like the political element was an intrinsic part of it as you just explained from it, its birth is that still the case by and large Absolutely. Or is it so more divorced from politics So now? that's one of, no, absolutely not. Okay. That's one of the things that I like that, that have been helpful with talking people in comments over this paper. And that's one of the reasons why um, I don't want, I, I want to be very, very careful about pigeonholing these two genres into something and thinking about them in, in maybe not, not so right terms. So like, uh, basically the way that I was thinking about it is that so the history of trap is also a really really contentious interesting history it's not quite clear who created the term obviously language is hard to follow like that yeah. uh, a couple of years ago uh, maybe last year I don't remember I don't remember when it was but T.I. Uh, so Tip Harris and Gucci Mane I don't know if you know those rappers, yeah. but they got into a back and forth of who created the term because <laughs> um, Gucci has, I think it was a 2003 or 2004 album called Trap House. Mm -hmm. 
and I think it's called Trap House. And Tip Harris has a uh, one of his first mm-hmm. albums. I think it's from two thousand one. It's called Trap Music, uh, M U Z I K. But if you go back and look at lyrics, I mean, you can see Big Boy of Outkast using um, the term trap uh, far, far before, maybe half a decade before you start using that. So central to the idea of trap is definitely, definitely, definitely drug culture still. So even the ne- even that we have a term called trap music mm-hmm. means that it's political because of the drug. You, you see what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. uh so we can't even if because the drug war, even, because the drug war is political. Yeah, yeah. It, political. Blackness in the United States of America is political generally, but specifically the drug war is political. Um, so although like, uh, and this is one of the problems that I've been trying to to deal with in in some of the the subsequent drafts um, that I've been working on uh, since is really really trying to think about. Like, um, so one of the ways that I was thinking about shaping is at some point in the history of trap music, uh, which is one of the reasons why I look at Future, I think Future's an, an interesting character. You uh, said he's the kind of main propagator of trap music? I, I wouldn't say main because it's hard to say this, that, and the other, but the way that the politics work, so to go back to Big Boy and Outcast, and all of these rappers are from Atlanta, which yeah, is an interesting, Atlanta, which is yeah. an interesting, like that's the cultural site of trap music, mm-hmm. uh, or at least the origin of it. I think you have a, a huge Houston influence, there's some Miami influence, but I think that Whenever we're thinking about regions, I think Atlanta is really, really crucial to the formation. And why, like, why is that? Is there something about the city that explains that fact that trap music really derives think, from there I more than anywhere? There's a lot of I think there's a lot of social and, and cultural like we see crunkadelic on the wall, crunk music. Uh, so like crunk music, crunk music, Lil John and crunk music sort of come in. Well, sometime at some point, all of this is to say that at some point in the mid to late two thousands. There becomes uh, what some people would characterize a larger emphasis on using drugs mm-hmm. comparative to in the 90s, that so-called golden era of hip-hop, where drugs were more for economic benefit. Mm-hmm. So it's about selling in the 90s. It's about using in the late 2000s at some point. I don't know where that distinction or where if we can even make that distinction and what makes trap music trap music because... There are sonic, like there are sonic characteristics of trap music that make it trap music. Chiefly, the rapid fire hi hats, the triple timer, the double or triple time hi hats. So if you listen to a song, you'll hear the 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 fast hi hats, and you'll once you hear it, you'll probably never be able to hear it. But that's one of the sounds that really comes uh, alongside that that Roland 808 that sort of typifies that trap music sound that's what we're talking about whenever you right. hear somebody talk about trap drums yeah um, and this gets into the distinction that you were telling me about regarding how hip-hop is more about transcendence generally speaking whereas trap is more about so right like you said like hi- so hi- here's the tough it's about thing. escaping your so so here's the tough thing and this is where i think the interest relative theory gets interesting because i don't i think you can point to any artist whether it's a trap artist or a hip-hop artist that exhibits both types of catharsis in their music mm-hmm. right so you could listen to uh 21 savages new album and you can listen to a song called ass and titties which is like a strip club anthem which i would say is definitely purgative in nature Mm-hmm. Um, compared to that same brother, Twenty One Savage, on a track on 
on Metro Boomin's new album called No More is talking about very, 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 very deep things about one of his friends committing suicide in prison because he was selling drugs and could so that's the problem I think with with that I've run into with trying to broadly contour is that there I can't it's think it's not of, a stark dichotomy it's a matter of degrees it's a matter of degrees and that's why I say it's the artistic intent that is relative to like what we're trying to do because uh, J. Cole's the same way. Not everything that J. Cole is making is this cognitive, stimulating, woke bars. You know what I mean? There are instances of of, of J. Cole saying, you know what? Maybe my fans just want to sit back and smoke a blunt real quick and relax and take a ride through the city. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think for me, that's one of the hard things about um, trying to contour it, which is why I think I'm going to try. I'll probably end up bringing this up as an idea and talking about some of the considerations that I've been thinking of, but really just saying, I I don't think it's really all that entirely helpful to try and draw this distinction because it's so specific to specific projects Mm -hmm. and and those artistic intents of of specific tracks Mm -hmm. and projects. Yeah, absolutely. But could you could you bring the distinction a little more to the forefront and specifically talk about how you apply catharsis to J. Cole's album, Cod, versus how catharsis figures in, what's the album called? Uh, World, World on, on Drugs. Future's World on Drugs. Because, I mean, so the basic distinction is how, when you're talking about J. Cole, it's more of a cognitive stimulation kind of catharsis where you're you're transcending whatever bad predicament you're in and becoming more politically conscious. Whereas, with respect to trap music and Future's music, it's more about doing drugs, not selling drugs to try to transcend your predicament of poverty, but doing drugs so you forget about your predicament of poverty and not becoming politically conscious, but just forgetting about the hardships of life. And as you say, just smoking a blunt and just chilling, right? So it's kind of, that's more of a hedonistic, purely pleasure kind of catharsis as opposed to the cognitive stimulative kind of catharsis. And these, as you say, there's no fine distinction, but these, that kind of marks the distinction between the kind of catharsis that exists within uh, lyrically conscious hip hop versus trap. Yeah, so um, I use these two specific projects because I think they really, really highlight this distinction mm-hmm. um, that so-called hip hop heads will make between um, I don't know, maybe maybe something that that you might consider a luxury drug rap like Pusha T or Jay Z. We're talking about selling drugs. Mm, excuse me. And then <laughs> shit. Uh, Future has two albums called Dirty Sprite. I don't know if you know what Dirty Sprite is, but Dirty Sprite no. is uh, codeine and Sprite is lean. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, I know what, So, yeah, Dirty Sprite is another word for lean or syrup or scissor or whatever you may, whatever we may call it. But, um, but nah, I think what makes these two albums as interesting sites to talk about catharsis is in their names, just generally. Yeah, yeah. So, KOD... Uh, right, there are three meanings to that. There's right? three meanings. Um, there's three meanings to KOD, at least according to Cole. When did Cole come out with this album? Uh, this was beginning of 2018. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, this is last March, I think March 2018, February, February and March. So it's early 2018. Well, um, so he, when people were asking what he meant by the net, what does KOD mean? Um, he explained on Twitter that it has three meanings. Kids on drugs, kill our demons, 
and King overdosed. So at his concert, you can probably pull it up on YouTube. He explains what he means by these. The kids on drugs is pretty, pretty obvious. Um, King overdosed is him talking about uh, his overdose on power and influence and these sorts of things. And Kill Our Demons is him sort of talking about how we as humans all have pain and we use different methods of 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 uh, sort of dealing with these so throughout the album one of the things that he consistently one of the consistent ad libs is called choose wisely he keeps using this idea of choosing wisely of of picking how you're going to deal with these things and the cathartic the catharsis that you want now juxtapose that um well i guess before we juxtapose it j cole in many ways is is what you might consider a paragon of of golden era hip hop mm-hmm. uh, in his recent song Middle Child he talks about how he's actually in between two generations yeah, of rappers that. that was the song I was uh, have you to. seen the film yet the film's pretty great the music video yeah, yeah. I just I actually um, just saw it for the first time for this conversation <laughs> it's pretty dope um, yeah and he talks about how he's talking to all the new younger yeah. generation yeah so the, he's really really kind of highlighting this generational schism that I would say trap music in a lot of ways represents and this is what I want to talk about too, just the seeming ubiquity of mumble rap and where the future of hip hop is going and whether it's going in a good direction and what it says about our culture and all that. But um, but, but we can put that on hold. Um, for a second. So uh, yeah, we'll get into that as I talk about future a little bit because um, I think he's a complicated character that's super super important to the culture. Yeah. Um, so juxtapose that to future future comes up in atlanta his uncle was on was in dungeon family producing music for outcasts so there's a political lineage of future so it's the dungeon family who names him future his name used to be meathead and <laughs> his name used to be meathead but he can't that's his with, actual name no 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 oh his, that, was nah, that was like his rap name yeah no his name wasn't actually Jesus meathead Lord. but um uh, so he ends up becoming Future because Dungeon Family says you're the future of rap, essentially, and that's where he gets the name Future. His triplets, uh, so the da 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 the 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 fitting three syllables into one bar that's called triplets. Mm. Um, well, the way that he's doing that sort of just catches on and becomes super catchy. And obviously there's other figures. Future is not the only one that this is happening around. And there's obviously trap producers that are working with figures like Future to make this a, a distinct. And, and I mean, the fact that we have a word called trap, which roughly defines a concept that we have a general idea of, says that there's a general idea of what trap music is. But um, that's, a, that's on a, nif- a different thing. So Is it fair to say that in trap music, the lyrics are secondary? as opposed to hip-hop because it seems like with future i mean it's, it's hard to understand what future's saying a lot of the times just because the it seems like the beats are kind of first at the forefront of things and the lyrics kind of fall by the wayside i don't that know i don't know i don't know if that's ever been entirely different but i would i think that your general characterization um generally speaking is is yeah, it's. I think it's it's pretty spot on. I won't. I won't say that. I won't say that the lyrics don't matter because the lyrics definitely do matter and they carry meaning and significance. Yeah. yeah. But because of the triplets and the flow, right? Yeah. The flow has evolved in such a way that the flow becomes music in and of itself. It, it's always been music in and of itself, but That's, the yeah, musical yeah. qualities 
um, I won't say outweigh the lyrical content, but they're very, very, very important in ways that, like, if you listen to, like, I'm not going to lie to you, we talk about the golden era of rap, like, the beats were trash. Mm. Like, a lot of the beats from the 90s, the 90s were, like, were like not entirely all that great comparatively Did to you what you hear. You know what I mean? Like, production mm-hmm. quality. Now, a lot of that has to go to technology and this, that, and the other. And there's a lot of shit going on there. But So, do you think a lot of that's overblown when people talk about the golden era of hip-hop yeah, and absolutely. how things were so much better back then? Yeah, Is that just, like, nostalgia? Yeah, it's absolutely in? nostalgia. We act like there wasn't any trash music put out in the 1990s. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Like, how go look at YouTube videos of 90s rap and tell me that Jay-Z and Nas and Big and Pac were the only people rapping in the 90s. You know what I mean? Yeah, obviously you have... uh, I'm not going to lie to you. Yes, I personally prefer to listen to classical lyrical styles of hip-hop because of of the way that the rhymes are. And I love punchlines. I really, really love punchlines. So, yeah, I generally prefer the styles in, in the older thing and I think that has to do with the generation that I came up in I think there's a lot going on mm-hmm. but um, to fast forward to Future I think Future is interesting right. why I used World on Drugs because it's, it's I mean for me it's like okay well you have an album called Kids on Drugs that's produced as a critique of kids on drugs and then you have this dude future and juice world come out and they're like oh that's funny fuck you we're gonna make a, so <laughs> Yo, we're gonna the make, kids we're, we're going gonna the whole make world. A, we're gonna talk about how not nah, drug use is okay and i think that this is, i think in many ways it is a response and yeah, i think in many direct. ways i think in many ways trap music is a response to the societal respectability politics that have become associated with regular hip-hop with mm. classical hip-hop And one of the things that I hope to do with this paper is to say, even at bottom, at bottom, if it is a song about doing codeine Uh to deal with your reality, that your your lived reality, then we should analyze it and give it the full breadth and and consider it with the full philosophical depth of what's going on in those in those social conditions. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we need to treat them equally. I don't think that it's less than. I think that even if it is just in terms of that interest relative catharsis an artist saying, guess what, man, you're not alone. I know you're feeling down. I know the world sucks. Guess what? Let's have some fun. Mm-hmm. Pour something in a cup. Mm-hmm. Uh, go get somebody to dance with and let's have a good time because at the end of the day, we can find joy in this world in spite of everything that's going on in it. Um, so that's one of the things that I, I, I want to do is... is frame it in such a way that doesn't look at trap music as pejorative even if it is different mm-hmm. um, because I think that those cathartic games are just as necessary and just as important as those these deep cognitive stimulation mm. affect building um, styles of, of the more classical so-called classical hip hop yeah that's fair because a lot of people just will shit on trap music just saying it's dumbed like, down. Like they don't have anything to do. And this but is it has its problems. place. That's what you're saying. It has its place. Even, it has even its function. When, but here's the thing. That's what I'm saying is like that's the hard part about contouring it because you can go to any trap, any trap star, mm-hmm. and you're going to find a deep, deep social critique. Well, that was going to be my next question. I was like, a lot of these people who are producing trap music, are they putting as much philosophical thought behind their music as you are? Because people like J. Cole, who are making the lyrically conscious stuff, obviously they're putting philosophical thought behind that. 
Are but, a lot of these trap musicians doing that, or think, are you applying that philosophical thought? I think I think it depends on who who we're talking about in specific in those specific right, yeah. goals. Like I Painting said, you can you can point to any any number of voices within what we might consider trap music hmm. um, and point out very 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 deep deep like I mean March Madness is about police violence. Wait, what? What's Future's March Future's March Madness, his most oh, oh. famous song ever, is about. You talk about college like basketball. That, I'm like, wait, like what? there's a, well, yeah, that's that's the point, right? Like that's what we think that that's what we sort of refers to in loose senses. But when you listen to when you listen to the lyrics, like uh, there's a, a number of lines about police violence in the song that sort of get lost along the way because people think that oh, he's just Future talking about doing coding. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, yeah, Future's one of the reasons why Future is resorting to doing coding is because of the police violence he's talking mm-hmm. about. Um, whether or not he's even doing it. And that, I think, is interesting, too, is uh, a lot of the times I don't think we recognize artists as artists. Yeah. And we think that their identities are all wrapped into one. And I don't know who Future is whenever he's not in the booth, yeah. whenever he's not putting on that mask of Future and giving me what he thinks I want to hear. Well, that's why I get so angry when I figure out that some rapper that I like actually has ghostwriters. Because I like I like complete artists. That's why I like J. Cole so much, because he does everything. He sings, he creates the beat. All The art that you're hearing is completely constructed from his imagination and his mind. You know, so... And especially, I feel, you know, if, if you're rapping, it's just more real if you're the one that writes it. If, if it doesn't come from you, I do lose a little respect for the artist if they have ghostwriters. And I don't know how ubiquitous that is in the rap world, but it seems like it's more ubiquitous than I thought it was. Um, just, I don't know. That's an inter- there's an interesting history there, um, for sure. I feel torn. Uh, one of the reasons why I love J. Cole is because he can go platinum with no features. No features! Right? No features. At the Let's same go. time, at the same time, my most highly anticipated album that will come out within the, in the first half of the year is Revenge of the Dreamers 3, which is the whole Dreamville gang just getting in the booth and having fun. Right? So that's why, like, I love a good feature. I love a good feature whenever two of my artists collab on something. So I'm not fine with that. I'm just saying ghostwriting. No, but, but here's the thing is what I was getting to is a lot of the times I think so ghostwriting is one thing. I think we can point to a number of artists. Um, I think it's, I mean, the biggest one that has come into fire for it lately, at least in the hip-hop world, is Drake, Aubrey, Aubrey Drake. Um, and I think there's something about, so like pop stars, I think generally have not produce their own lyrics. Like, I bet you Michael Jackson didn't write yeah. his, most of his own lyrics. The Weeknd doesn't write most of them. These are vocalists, and I think that that's a different type of art than what, emceeing. The, the Weeknd um, doesn't? I don't think that we cannot. I don't think the Weeknd writes his own lyrics. Um, that's disappointing, that's true. That's why credits were really, really important, and that, that sort of goes back to, like, me consuming hip-hop in the 90s. I would know all these things because in the 90s, when you get a cassette, you pull out the cassette, and in the cassette, you got all the lyrics and the credits. Hmm. Uh, we don't have that now. I think it's something like, I don't remember what the headline was that I read. Um, I read an article a few weeks ago that was, like, only one million, maybe? It might have been a couple more zeros on that, but it was like an astoundingly low number of actual albums that were bought 
because everybody's streaming music. Like, mm-hmm. who's, nobody ain't buying albums no more. Yeah. So I think the way that we consume music really shapes the way that we think about it too. But um, That's a good point. as far as ghostwriting, um, I think a lot of times whenever people get in the booth in those group settings, you might get a line or something, you know what I mean, that comes from somebody else or somebody hears your somebody hears your one line and they're like, yo, you should think about this metaphor or something in there. And I think that there's a lot of collaborative I think that is part of what makes hip hop hip hop. But I yeah, I think that like is, feeding I off of the energy of other the people. Energy in the energy and, and giving mm-hmm. giving these sorts of uh, not critiques but maybe like um, yo that shit would be really dope if you dropped a line in about J. Edgar Hoover okay. or whatever it is here and there right, so um, and point. I think these things happen all the time I don't think that you can be in an artistic space without these things happening Yeah. and that being said I think that's what makes a lot of these artistic spaces absolutely amazing I think that's why we mm-hmm. get some of these amazing relationships between artists and producers I think that there's a lot of things that go into it um, it's but, a collaborative yeah, process. But generally speaking, um, I think whenever we think of what ghostwriting is, it's someone actually putting together a, a number of lyrics that will be produced in song and rap verbatim. Yeah, see, in my head, I was imagining just, you know, some writer like coming up and giving now, the rapper now, a page and being people, like. Now, now, I think that there's evidence. Um, you just, I mean, that's what I think up. I think that's been the, that there's so much controversy over Drake and Quentin Miller. I think there has to be something. Do you have the answer to the Drake thing? What what's the what the answer? To what? I just some some people say no. Drake writes all of his his own shit, and then other people say he doesn't write any of it. Just is there? I, no, I think there's. A, I think there's. A, it's Probably. never. It's never either or. It's not a, I think yeah, I know that. But I'm trying no, to figure I, out where I is think, he on that spectrum. No, I think on that spectrum. I think uh, now here's where I got. Um, I love Drake's music. Me too. I'm going to just put that out there first and foremost. Um, I think Drake is a wonderful artist. I do not think he's a hip-hop MC. Um, I think that there's there's evidence, and I think the fact that Quentin Miller has been so... I mean, just, just YouTube, Quentin Miller and Drake, and I think there's a lot of overlap of of some Quentin Miller things with Drake things. That being said, Drake's got one of the most fire flows in the game. So you give something to him, no, no. it's 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 not it's no longer yours. He's gonna change it and flow it in different ways. And I think that that is also something that we need to talk about in this sort of conversation. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, um yeah, there's a lot of speculation. So what about another thing, uh going back to trap so we've talked about how politics is infused in the music, and then we talked about how the beats have played more of a prominent role or gone to the forefront more than the lyrics. It also seems like fashion and the aesthetic has come to occupy more of a prominent role in the music. Since when? Uh, well, I mean, maybe it was always there. <laughs> you know more than me, man. <laughs> it just yeah, seems like no, no, that's why I said that. Um, because it's always uh, been a part uh, of it. It's always been a part of it's it. As, part as you see, um, like you like... see one of the resurgences of, of African uh, patterns like kente cloth and things like this really, really uh. kind of coincide. Like I said, that's the importance of the black power movement and sort of hip hop as an extension of the black power movement is that you get a lot of interesting things. And then like whenever you think of Run DMC, what do you think of? Um, I think of Kango hats, Adidas track suits, and uh, I don't know their music that well, to be honest. Yeah, no, I'm talking about like... Um, 
I'm talking about just like the image 80s aesthetics. Like yeah. whenever I think of Run DMC, I think of a particular aesthetic of gold rope with an Adidas tracksuit and a Kango hat. Mm -hmm. And let's see, let's see what happens when we pull them up on Google. I bet you, yeah, exactly. You see what I mean? Right. There's oh, yeah, an aesthetic no, that's attached to Run DMC to Run DMC that they do it in a particular way. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, you can look up Africa Bambata and you're gonna see a lot of a lot of uh, stuff that's associated with that. A really really good book to think about this sort of question um, is uh, Muslim Cool by Swad Abdul Kabir. Muslim Cool. Muslim Cool, which uh, she interrogates some of the 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 interesting relationships and processes that go into performance of identity, um, specifically black Muslim identities and how they interact in particularly Chicago. And one of the chapters, um, well, the whole book, she kind of talks about gender in different ways, but like uh, one site being the hood job, H-O-O-D-J-A-B. Um, the hood job is a site of both of contestation to white supremacy in a number of ways by molding the idea of traditional African headwear um, that women would wear and Muslim headwear, chiefly the hijab. the hijab. You kind of fuse these two identities together and say, no, I am a black woman or I am a non-black Muslim woman that is pro-black. That allows you to articulate a, a, a political position through aesthetic wear. Another site that she uses is called the Dandy, the Muslim Dandy, and the way that Muslim dandies signify or use white symbols and signs to um, sort of subvert that hegemonic power. So the Muslim Dandy will wear a typical business suit, but in a flashy, flashy type way that sort of redefines what that business suit means. Mm -hmm. um, being on a black body specifically, so I think there's a lot of interesting sites, but um, yeah, fashion is super, it's always super been a part of it. Always been a part of it. But do you think maybe that uh, some people are paying more attention to the aesthetic? And I, I fuck with the aesthetic aspect of hip hop. I love it. But do you, I feel like sometimes people pay more attention or give more credence to that to the detriment of the music or the substance. Like I'm thinking about Takashi Six Nine, oh, people like this. Um, yeah, no, I think uh, I, I think it's it's really interesting, and I, like I said, I think this plays back into the into the point that I made about we forget that artists are artists, hmm. and I don't know what that dude's like behind closed doors or when yeah. he's with his mother or when he, you know what I mean. I think we get a person, we get we get the perspective of him that he wants the media to see. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's complicated in a number of ways, and I think that that these young men and women are and, and non-binary folks are very, 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 um, a lot of the times cognizant of how they're uh, consumed and perceived, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of the times it becomes a character and a part of their, a part of their craft and mm -hmm. persona. Um, that being said, it's really, really interesting. Uh, like the shit that that dude does in the booth. Have you ever listened to his music? Yeah, yeah. 
that dude is like one of the most intense people I've ever met, like I've ever Texas listened to in my life. Like the song "Billy" makes me want to fucking punch somebody's face off. I don't know. I don't think I've listened. How he? I don't know how he like. But that. But what I'm, up that what, but what I'm saying, yeah, what I'm saying is like that's part of his character, and I. It, yeah. At, at some level, you can detach it. I think from whoever he was. I don't know what his born what name saying. was. You know what I mean? So it's like yeah, you it, can't. It's, the, it, it's together and separate at the same time. Yeah, it almost doesn't make sense to separate the aesthetic part from the musical part because it's all mixed into the identity of that artist as a whole. Yeah. Like it's all one package. Yeah. Like so you can say like you're separating the aesthetic from the music. Like it's all. This is who you are. This is your aura. At the, at the end of the day, at, at some point. At some point, Christopher Wallace became Notorious B.I.G. Right, that became a piece of his identity that people recognized him as. Right. You know, rather than the Christopher Wallace, he was right. known first to people. And I think that, that there's something interesting going on there. It's like, at what point do you become this character that you're constructing and construing? Mm-hmm. Um, and to what level do you become that character? And I mm-hmm. think that's an interesting um, aesthetic question. I think it's an interesting moral question. I think there's a lot. And the of thing is, you have to you have to become that character authentically. You can't play that character, right? Because that's the whole thing with hip hop. If you're gonna go in on a beat, you have to be authentic and live in the moment. I feel people can tell when it's not you. Like if I'm just freestyling with my friends, you can tell when someone is faking it or trying to project. Uh, you know, trying to mimic one of their favorite rappers, right? Or trying to project some tough persona. I feel the, the best music is always when you're speaking in your natural voice. So you can, you have to become that character, again, organically, right? So Yeah, I, I think that definitely, I think you can construct things about that person. Um, one of my friends, Eddie Julio, uh, does a lot of interesting work. I encourage you and your listeners to look him up on identity. Um, specifically, he, he teaches creative writing in Rikers Island. Um, so he does a number of different creative writing techniques that allow incarcerated persons to create identities for themselves that are outside of the incarcerated state. Oh, and cool. I think that that's super, super powerful. And I think that there's yeah. a lot of things going on to that where it can be a completely constructed person that you can grow into. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think it's, it's there's a lot of complicated things going on with identity. It's, yeah. it's a super interesting question, especially whenever we talk about hip-hop. But, um, oh man, I was going to say something else, but we'll see if it comes back to me. Where, where do you want to go from here? Well, another question. How does mumble rap fit into this? Is mumble rap distinct from trap? Or I think, generally speaking, that's what we've, we, we conflate the two. We um, conflate the two? I think, generally, most people conf- conflate the two or think of trap as mumble rap. Yeah, um, that's how I've kind of been thinking just about Just generally, thing. I think that's how most people think about it. Um, and I think that it's... Like I said, I think we use it as a pejorative term, and I try. I get to, that sense too. I try to not. Seems view it has it like a negative a, conversation. Yeah, it does. It. I think it has to do with that nostalgia of '90s rap and and thinking that only things from the '90s are good. Um, I think that's the general logic that we sort of follow. Is like, oh well, I like that, and this is different, so I can't like this. 
Um, but yeah, I think that there's a number of it's inevitable. It's gonna. You said you wanted to talk about the evolution. It's gonna continue yeah. to evolve. Um, I think that different regions are going to do things in different ways, depending on what happens in those different regions and cities, specifically in neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it'll be good or bad, though. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, the interesting thing is like. Do you think that the existence of social, right? You say like how there are different hip hop styles that flow from different cities because the life in those different cities is completely different. But do you think the existence of social media and the fact that everyone can kind of be plugged in and connected and can see what each other's doing and the, the culture is more unified, do you think that stifles out some of the diversity that would otherwise uh, exist? Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, st- what do you mean by stifles out some of the diversity? Just because the, the culture is completely connected now, so you can just see what the prominent people in the culture are doing and culture- then. I don't think the culture has ever been really disconnected. Okay. You know what I mean? That's one of the interesting things. I think our networks have always... We might have a little bit easier access to information, but, I mean, West Coast hip-hop was always in in concert with East Coast hip-hop, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So while they they develop in these distinctive ways, I don't think that they're entirely separate but I think the technological question really really does have a heavy impact on where music is going and like I said if nothing else we stream music now we don't buy music yeah um and that has a a big thing and also SoundCloud but the interesting thing that I've been thinking about is like if you go through SoundCloud you're gonna hear some rappers that are fucking fire, straight fire. Oh, I, and I, I, and they'll have like, like 50, why is this person like, famous? Exactly, like oh, you've only got fifty followers. How is this a thing? And oh, you have the opposite well, reaction too. We still have we be. still have political relationships, right? It's the industry still a political industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you still so have to know people. You, you still, still to gotta know somebody. You still gotta get in a room with J Cole to give him a tape, right? right. You still gotta get into a room with a, an ad exec to. With a, a record exact in order to, to to be put on. There are so many undiscovered geniuses out there on SoundCloud. There, there really are. Another thing that I've uh, just come to realize, like I should have realized this so long ago, and this ties into the fact that we don't buy records anymore, but we just stream everything online, is that I feel like a lot of people don't listen to albums all the way through anymore, right? And a, a lot of times that's part of the artistic experience, right? The album itself is a project and I only started doing this a couple of years ago. It took a long time for it to click in my brain. But you listening to the album from chronologically from the beginning to end is like a unique artistic, going back to artistic intent, right? The artist usually designed the album in such a way that they've created this unique listening experience. And you can't get that if you just listen to the songs in isolation. Like, oh, this is in the top 10 of iTunes. I'll just listen to this song. And, you know, so I feel like that has been lost a lot. Uh, yeah, I think we have lost a lot of that. Uh, the storytelling that could happen through an album, I think we have lost a lot of that. Um, and I think that's good and bad. Um, and market forces are really, really interesting. Mm. And, like, it's made me think of, like, like it's, it's really complicated. It's, like, really, really a lot of complicated shit going on because yeah. whenever you think about it, it's like, Okay, I used to pay, I don't know, what was it? Somewhere between 8 and $15 for a CD, right? Mm. Something like that. Um, now you pay $5 a month, $10 a month maybe, depending on what your situation is, to Tidal or Spotify or Apple or whatever. 
and now you with that that money that you spend every month you have access to every single song that you possibly want for the most part so you don't have to buy the album whereas whenever back in the day like you're gonna buy the singles that that artist puts out or you're gonna buy the whole album and then you have to kind of sort through it and i think that there's something interesting going on there where it's like we pay less and we access more Mm -hmm. that's really in in a more selective way and i think that there's something going on we've Uh, just been trained to expect the music for free at this for the at this point. point yeah for the most point i, I, I wonder go to the market forces point um how many people are creating you know how many people are seeing successful music and they're just mimicking that because they've seen that this is successful and they're not actually making music based upon their own artistic inspiration what you, you know mean, what i mean what do you mean by success what is success just seeing like we a, mean a particular like we pa- mean like uh, like won a Grammy or went platinum or like what's how are we I'm, I'm asking commercial like, commercially successful commercial success commercially successful right you see like a particular uh, pattern of beats or something that the public se- that seems to be resonating with the public and now you're mimicking that solely because you've seen that that formula works so you're mimicking that formula instead of trying to find your own formula i feel like there's maybe there's not as much of that in rap i feel like there's a ton of that in pop i don't think i don't think it's as conscientious as that yeah. i don't think that we're as conscientious as, as i think we do it in anything that we do right i think we're, just unconscious mimicking. He, he, it's not even really mimicking we're just constrained by the discourse that we're allowed to have by the discourse that we've been allowed to experience if that makes sense so that we're talking about catharsis relies upon me having me and you having read some portion of a discourse on catharsis Mm -hmm. uh if it was named something else we'd be having a completely different so i think we're constrained and we do things in certain sorts of ways uh that we don't necessarily recognize all the time and i think similar things go on in the music industry now that isn't to say that there isn't any conscious effort in recognizing like oh that beat slapped let me sample the fucking 808 out of that shit and then build around that i think there are some things that go on um in order to in order to maintain commercial success but i think that it's a hard it's a hard line to draw to say whether it's somewhat whether we're conscious of it or not i think it's a little of both mm-hmm. if that makes sense so where do you think the future of hip-hop is going do you have a sense or and what do you think about the current state of hip-hop i mean i, I guess love you- hip-hop man i love it i love i love the deep deep conscious bars that are coming out of of many places i love um i personally think that the hip-hop film the hip-hop music video remains the highest the highest in uh let me see how i want to phrase this um the the greatest articulation of truth through an artistic medium in the u.s context like i think music videos are are that important and i think going along to going along with that 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 discussion about the album yeah i think a lot of times we view albums as just the musical just the sonic components of the album when in reality like look at jay-z's 444 um can you really look at jay-z's 444 without considering that he put out a film, a distinct film, for each and every track that was on that album. And then alongside each of those films, he put out a footnotes of 
of people from the so-called culture conversating about what happened in those videos. No, I don't. I don't think that we can legitimately talk about the gravity that Jay Z that that Jay Z's album had without talking about the visuals. Uh, I don't. I, I think there's a number of people that are like that. Um, I don't think that we can talk about the importance of ASAP Rocky without talking about that he's a cover model for Christian Dior. I don't think that we can talk about Kanye West without talking about what he's done for street fashion and these sorts of things and how he's forced those to evolve over time just by simply injecting himself into mainstream corporate culture of Nike and Adidas. Mm -hmm. So these are the interesting sort of crossovers that I think people don't don't really think about in in the general in the general terms of like right. hip hop these are all these are this is hip hop yeah, in, in many it goes ways back to what that you're saying. Like, you have their the artistic identity right. seeps not just into the music but it seeps into other mediums everything. and domains too everything. and it's all wrapped up everything can i, I guess uh, can we end with a top 5 list <laughs> top 5 of what uh, favorite rappers. Your your favorite, favorite rappers. Rappers, or we talking MCs? rappers or like hip hop artists or we talking like rappers. What's How the distinction about, between a rapper and a hip hop artist? Man, rap. rap uh, man, rap is for me. Um, that's a that's a tough <laughs> distinction to make. Um, that's that's a dif- difficult distinction to make. But whenever I think of hip hop. Uh, yeah, we versus rap, rap. I, I generally think of rap as more rageful. Mm. Um, but rappers, man, how about we limited? How about we limit it to? Um, we can like do whatever we, you want. How about <laughs> the people? The people I'm listening to today. Um, let's yeah, see. Who am I impressed? With? I'm, I'm gonna do a top five. I'll give you all some of the people that I'm impressed yeah. with. I always to? love. Um, like I said, I told you earlier, I lived in Fayetteville. I'm from Wilmington and lived in Fayetteville. Shout out to the Nine Dime um, from 2005 to 2010 when I was in the Army. So I came up on J. Cole in that sort of and that sort of region. So J. Cole's always been near and dear to my heart. I think he's one of the greatest poets of our time. Um, I concur. I mean, you got Kendrick. Uh, those are the two Kung sort Fu of Kenny. those. Those are the two sort of. Um, Kenny with the mind. The two the two artists that I think the mainstream have latched onto and and constructed of the best of paragons. Yeah. Um, as far as like other rappers that are in the game that I absolutely have loved for a long time, I would say. Um, I would say, for me, uh, Pusha T is. Ridiculous. Push has like crazy Pusha. bars. Fab, Fabulous has crazy bars. Uh, Lloyd Banks, the Punchline King. Um, let's see who else influences me in the contemporary sense. Like I said, ASAP Rocky um, is, I think, one of the greatest artists that that I will see during my life. Travis Scott is absolutely the most technical producer I've ever seen. I don't know much of his stuff. I gotta um, get into more of his stuff. Love Metro Boomin. Um, he's an interesting like you have some interesting DJs that are doing fascinating things like Metro Boomin doesn't rap at all yet he just put out an album that was probably on my top five albums of last year mm-hmm. um, that's interesting because he's just a super producer um, uh, Queen Latifah's always had a huge impact on me um, that's the interesting thing I, I think also about the way that we think about it is like uh, what's the what's the role of 
of gender in rap music, and I think that oftentimes yeah. gets either shaped negatively. Um, and there are I'm not I'm not absconding. There are very very terrible terrible misogynistic practices and procedures that go on in the hip hop world. It seems um, like recently there have been more famous female hip hop artists that have risen to the mainstream culture over the past 10 years or so. Is that fair or not? Mm, probably not. Okay. Um, it just seems like I, I think we just notice them more and uh, like it's really interesting. Um, I think Cardi B is an interesting character. What do you think of Cardi B? I love Cardi B. I think she's the most authentic I like person. Cardi B. I, I love Cardi B um, in terms of her authenticity. Um, I don't think that she didn't deserve a Grammy. That's not what I'm going to say. There's a bunch I of controversy about that, there right? Is, Ice there Cube, should I be. Ice Ice Cube, there's it. another one that didn't go on the list. Obviously, I didn't put the usual suspects, but yeah, I mean, of those classical them. rap artists, hip-hop artists, Ice Cube, I think, is the most important for the culture, generally. Yeah. Um, uh, but, yeah, it's, it's super, super interesting um, that... He never. That's why I was asking about success. Is like, yeah. what is, is is Kod unsuccessful because it didn't win a Grammy? Yeah, I wouldn't argue that. It's done a lot for a lot of people, so it depends on how we we think about success. But um, that's a good point. Yeah, I think I think the music industry is super super interesting, especially in in hip hop today. And I think, uh, like I said, internet and access and these sorts of things. Um, do you think it is arbitrary? And this goes back. This ties into a bunch of things we've been talking about about how politics matters, can, having connections matters. But you noted how J Cole and K Dot are the ones that the mainstream culture have really latched onto. Do you think it's arbitrary a lot of the times as to which artists kind of rise up the pecking order in the mainstream culture? Because it seems like as we've discussed, no, there's so I many. It, I don't think it's arbitrary. I don't think well, anything's arbitrary. I don't think it's arbitrary. I well, think there's a lot of things that play into it. Arbitrary in terms of, in terms of the fact that there are so many equally talented lyricists and MCs that could potentially be as famous, but for whatever reason they're not because they don't have this, the. Connection. Let me ask you this: Of those people I named, why has Eminem outsold every single one of them? Because he's white. I think it has something to do with it. I don't think that it... You know what I mean? Like, I think yeah, that race race is one of those politics that I think really, really play into how we consume okay. art. Um, but I also so think that's he one is thing. one of the best lyricists of all time. Uh, I'm not going to argue that he's not good. But at the same time, you have a bunch of people from the 90s that we don't listen to like that, right? Why? There's mm -hmm. a politics and there's a conscientiousness that goes into what we consume. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, I think that is it's super 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 complicated. But I think like, Drake Drake hit it on the head, right? Drake hit it on the, on the head in this Grammys. Much as I uh, have a it? complicated relationship with Drake, got up there and they cut off his mic because he was like, "Why are we allowing the Grammys to tell us whether or not we're successful whenever they can't understand the art that we're creating?" And that I think is what What's it's he? always come down to. Is like, why does Willie? Why does Melly Vanilli have a fucking Grammy? I don't even know who that is. They got caught lip singing. Like, you're oh, talking right. about ghostwriting? The music went off on them dudes in the late 80s, early 90s, and they're, like, they're lip singing their own. You know what I mean? So, like, that, that I think is, there's a lot of politics that go into who we choose to oh, celebrate and this, that, and the other. So I don't think it's arbitrary. And then the Oscars, but too. But super, like. super, super, super and complicated. And movies, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I'm guessing Drake was against Cardi B. 
I, I don't know. I, I'm followed. I, I try to not like get into the the gossip the and, and shit like that unless there's like a cold, yeah. a cold diss like push mm-hmm. like poop like pushes this on on Drake. But yeah, I think that is interesting. <laughs> that blew up. I think that is interesting, and that goes into this conversation about trap too. Is like we're willing to throw this whole entire generation of rappers that consider themselves that identify as trap stars under the bus as mumble rappers yeah. and shape it as a negative way because mostly white people who've been consuming an, an art form for two decades have said that this is not what they want to consume. You know what I mean? I think it's really, really interesting and I think that there's a lot of racial baggage that gets gets attached to things and I think that there's gender politics and residue that gets attached to things. Um, so... Arbitrary, no. Super, super complicated, but but not not arbitrary by any means. I think that yeah. the the industry the industry controls things in in a certain sort of way, and I think streaming actually is interesting and challenging that in certain sort of ways. Like um, uh, Jay Z and Beyonce get pushed back because they put their shit on their front page. On their front page of title. Oh, right. right. So yeah, I'm gonna listen to the Beyonce album or the Jay Z album that I see in front of my face that I know came out because you're advertising it on the front page as opposed to whoever else's album came out on that Friday that you got three pages down. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So yeah, who controls like what gets put on front pages and the billboard and this that and the other? These are all very non-arbitrary things that interact very very um complicatedly to to sort of shape what we consume and who who we consume and and how that works yeah well man i'm definitely with you with respect to how each has its place you know trap music has its place in certain contexts and so does lyrically conscious rap and to say that one's bad and one's not is just to fundamentally misunderstand that fundamental truth yeah and and i think one of the interesting things just to just to wrap up on that Mm -hmm. um ti was on Trevor Noah a couple years ago and Trevor Noah said well what do you say about people that think that your lyrics are violent and misogynistic and this that and the other and he said well if you want us to change the lyrics and change the social conditions right it's literally just a reflection of that and that that's don't the criticize point. the and lyrics the point. Criticize and, that, the and, that, and that's what I'm trying to say about trap music is even if at bottom, it's a garbage song with nothing going on other than fucking talking about doing sandy bars and drinking lean. There's something that we ought to take very, very seriously about that sort of artistic production and the social conditions that led to it. Um, but yeah. So let's end with that, right? Perfect end. Sounds good to me. Hey, thanks I for doing pre- this. Right? I appreciate your time, man. I appreciate the conversation. It was fun. Me too, man. I had a great time. And this? John Coltrane taught us that all music is a form of prayer because music is fundamentally a matter of trying this to figure right? our suffering and our pain into a sound that can allow us not just to survive but to thrive. And if your music is just a matter of making money and just a matter of mere entertainment, if you don't understand the greatest tradition in the modern world, which is modern music, modern music is always a matter of speaking to the soul. How do you ensure that the spiritual warfare that's taking place this very moment in terms of the weak, dumbed-down music for our young people is targeted so that we keep alive the great musical tradition that's not about dumbing down 
not just about lifting up, but it's about empowering, enabling, and ennobling. Like a beat in the background. Warriors to tell the truth and be true. Can I put this in the podcast? Yeah, I started recording when you started playing it again. Shit's fired.